and we're back for season three of Straight to the Comments and we have missed you. We have a lot to catch up on. We really do, but we have a great episode for you today. And if you're new, then welcome to Straight to the Comments. I'm Lisa. And I'm Sarah. And we're taking you into the comments section of the latest pop culture stories. Yes, in every episode, we analyse the comments, the good and the bad, and try to understand the psychology behind the reactions. From accusations that Ariana Grande is not a woman's woman, to calling Pedro Pascal the internet's daddy. But today, we're going to be talking about turning criminals into celebrities particularly the celebrification of Gypsy Rose Blanchard, who's just been released from prison for murdering her mother, and con artist Anna Delvey, who is still under house arrest in New York. Gypsy Rose has over 8 million followers on Instagram, and Anna has over 1 million. You could say that they're using the most modern of ways to capitalise on their notoriety by becoming influencers. The questions we're asking today are, why are we so captivated by certain crimes? Is it okay for people to profit from their conviction? And what does the celebrification of criminals say about our society? Let's go straight to the comments. So much of the American mythology and entertainment industry is around criminals. You know, from Bonnie and Clyde to Charles Manson. They have this hold on the media and the public that reminds me of one of my favourite films in the 90s called Natural Born Killers with Juliette Lewis and Woody Harnison. You know, they were playing serial killers who were on the run and being glamorised by the media in real time. And someone said about it on Reddit, it was something timely and relevant even at the time it was made thanks to tabloid journalism. And it eerily feels more so now thanks to social media and how anyone can be a celebrity and have a following no matter what a terrible person they are. Which brings me to the idea of how criminals are using their notoriety in the social media age. Well, you know, just for a bit of clarity, notoriety traditionally carries a negative connotation. I mean, it suggests a person's infamous or has a bad reputation. But on the other hand, a celebrity is someone who is widely recognised and celebrated, usually for achievements in entertainment, sports, arts or other fields. But today, in the age of social media, um, whereas historically a criminal might be jailed, do their time and then disappear from the public radar or, you know, even go into hiding like Lord Lucan, They can actually now brazenly evade the law, but even win an Oscar like Roman Polanski and even flaunt their lifestyle on social media like the Tinder swindler. Oh, that guy really winds me Uh. up. I mean, it's just amazing, you know, that for someone who receives such a backlash, you know, the Tinder swindler, whose real name is Simon Levy, he has one million followers on Instagram. And in one post, which I looked at recently, you know, when researching this, he sat on top of a horse (laughs) and his caption is true happiness is peace and then someone responded simon my mum wants her horse back (laughs) that's the best (laughs) response ever i think that guy wins the internet for the day (laughs) yeah he does then someone else said how is it possible that a man who steals and should be in prison still lives his snobbish life and people support him why all these followers what is wrong with the world and then simon replied my Netflix documentary was the most watched documentary in the history of Netflix and it got five Emmy Awards. I mean, so, you know, it seems like he thinks he's winning because he sees the world, uh, a world that values ratings and awards. And so he shouldn't feel sorry or face punishment because he's successful in those terms. Absolutely. And, you know, he was the subject at the time when that documentary came out, and he still is, 
of millions of memes and jokes. And I think in some way, and in some way that sort of lessened his threat and he's sort of trading off this humour. But I did notice many more women commenting how he should be in jail and facing punishment. Yeah, and I, I, I would say I agree with them. So I think in the social media age, it actually gives the criminals, or at least certain criminals, this agency to capitalise directly through social media on their notoriety. You know, they don't actually need a film studio or a TV studio or a book deal. They can actually just do it themselves, build an audience and then monetize it. Mm. So Gypsy Rose Blanchard was just released early from prison uh, in December of last year after serving eight out of the 10 years that she was sentenced to for her role in the killing of her mother. Claudine, known as Dee Dee Blanchard. Mm -hmm. And since her release, she's actually been very publicly sharing her story. She's released a Lifetime docuseries called The Prison Confessions of Gypsy Road Blanchard. She's also released an ebook titled Released, Conversations on the Eve of Freedom. And she's declared that she wants to do advocacy work and bring more awareness to mental health issues, sexual abuse and physical abuse. But on top of that, she's also just been sharing a lot about her new husband who she met while in prison. But we're going to get into that a bit later. So what do you know about this story, Lisa? Well, look, I only know a little bit. I actually just watched 15 minutes of the show when it first came out. I just didn't really get into it. So tell me more. Yeah, so the TV show you're talking about was the fictionalised Hulu series that was released in 2019, and it was called The Act. It starred Joey King as Gypsy and uh, Patricia Arquette as Dee Dee. And it even won Arquette a Supporting Actress Emmy, and Joey King got a nomination. So it was actually really popular. There have also been a load of different documentaries about this story. And I think it's because it's one of those stories that is so crazy you couldn't invent it. And, and people are definitely fascinated. So Gypsy Rose, she gained over 12 million followers on Instagram and TikTok in the space of one week. That is absolutely insane. <laughs> yeah, I mean, clearly we need to be taking PR tips from her. But um, <laughs> oh, man, hold on, let's, <laughs> let's finish not. the episode maybe first. Not. Yeah. yeah. Um, so some of the posts that people actually posted on her Instagram directly to her were I'm so excited to watch you live your life the way you deserve to. And another one is, you are literally my Roman Empire. I think about you daily. Wait, what? Okay, so the Roman Empire thing, it's actually a reference to this TikTok trend from last year where women recorded their partners asking them how often they thought about the Roman Empire. And basically, it seems like men are constantly thinking about the Roman Empire. I don't know why. (laughs) (laughs) I blame Gladiator. I think people are still stuck on that film. (laughs) I'm sure it's played a role. That's so random. But when reading some of these comments, I did notice that not everyone is embracing her transition, you know, onto social media and becoming like this influencer, especially while still in prison waiting to be released. Someone said on Instagram, you're allowed to be on a computer in prison. And then someone else said, I just want her off the Internet at this point. She's a horrible influence and she's not stable. And you can tell that when she speaks. I mean, this craze over her has been so intense the last couple of weeks. What do you think it's all about? Well, I think it's because it has multiple elements. So um, people have always been fascinated by true crime. I hold my hand up. I'm one of those people. Mm-hmm. But always the more extreme examples, the, the more people are going to be interested. So serial killers are practically celebrities these days. And we're going to actually get to that a little bit later. But Danielle Haig, a psychologist who specialises in psychopaths and other maladaptive personalities, she says, it gives us a glimpse into the darker aspects of human nature and societal issues. And particularly in Gypsy Rose's case, she goes on to say, 
People are drawn to her story not only because of its tragic elements, but also due to the ethical and moral dilemmas it presents, such as the debate over her culpability and the justice system's handling of her case. It's a complex interplay of psychological intrigue, media portrayal and societal fascination with crime and punishment that fuels this obsession with her. And we've actually seen that crop up in the online comments a lot. So, for example, someone posted on Instagram, she never should have went to prison. The people who sent her there should go to prison. And from what I did read about her, you know, she's had so much tragedy in her life. She's a victim of medical, psychological and physical abuse by her mother. And it's been going on for absolutely years. I think that's probably really what intrigues people so much is that she is a perpetrator, but she's actually a victim as well. And we're talking, of course, about Munchausen by proxy, which is one of those diseases. It's actually pretty rare, so rare, in fact, that reliable numbers on its incidents in the US are actually really difficult to come by. But they mm. absolutely love doing Lifetime movies about it um, because I think because it deals with a mother doing the exact opposite of what we see their role to be, which is protecting their children. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so bizarre. Um, so for anyone listening who's not aware of what this is, what is this disease? So Munchausen by proxy is a form of abuse um, where a guardian may seek attention or sympathy by making their child ill or exaggerating their illness. So in this particular case, her mother, Didi, made up and even caused a variety of illnesses for her daughter from, from quite a young age, actually. And she forced her to comply with her story by threatening her with physical abuse. I mean, it's really dark and it really reminds me of this show called... Um sharp objects I think I told you about it with Amy yeah. Adams where she her own mother is poisoning her and her sister and then making out that they're ill and it's extremely creepy and you and like you said it's the exact opposite of what you think a mother should be absolutely and I actually watched that series on a plane I thought it was really good but uh in Dee Dee Blanchard's case she made Gypsy spend most of her life in a wheelchair, even though she didn't actually need one. She ended up having numerous surgeries that were later deemed unnecessary. I mean, this is the thing with this story. It's just got so many twists and turns and it's so it's almost hard to believe the horror of it. Oh, absolutely. And you know what? That isn't even that that isn't even half of it. So um, Dee Dee, she shaved Gypsy's head. So, so it looked like she'd gone through chemotherapy. She forced her to take medications that made her lose her teeth. And it made her look like she had some of the symptoms of the medical issues that she'd told the doctor that Gypsy Rose suffered from. And she even told people that her daughter had the mental age of a seven-year-old. And she faked her birth certificate when she claimed she'd lost it during Hurricane Katrina, which was really convenient for her. And, and Gypsy Rose was actually in her 20s, but they were saying she was a teenager. I mean, this is just like a horror story. And I know this abuse went on for years and people have a lot of sympathy for what Gypsy Rose went through, including mm. in these comments. I wouldn't know how to live the way she has lived. How could a mother do this to her own flesh and blood? For those of us who don't fully know the story and what happened next, what did Gypsy Rose do that, you know, meant that she ended up going to prison? Well, uh, she was managing to use, despite the fact that her mum was really controlling, she was managing to use the internet behind her back while she was sleeping. And it was sometime in around 2012, she actually made contact online with a guy called Nicholas Godajon. And he was around her age and they've said, that, you know, supposedly they met on a Christian singles website, which is a whole nother element. Okay. But he actually had a criminal record for indecent exposure and a history of mental illness. Sometimes it was recorded as dissociative identity disorder, but it wasn't clear. But he was also fully on the autism spectrum. And... 
After meeting online, their relationship developed. They then hatched a plan to murder her mother, which they carried out in June of 2015. So Gypsy Rose let him into the house while her mum was sleeping and she allegedly gave him duct tape, gloves and a knife and he then murdered Dee Dee by stabbing her 17 times. And after the murder, they I have to be honest, they were caught pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Gypsy Rose pleaded guilty to second degree murder and was sentenced to 10 years in prison. But Goda John was found guilty of first degree murder and sentenced to life in prison and he's still in prison. Um, mm-hmm. So that was just really a bare bone summary. Um, There are just so many elements that are surprising. They sent the murder weapon in the post after the murder. What? Who to? Well, it's weird, actually. They posted it to themselves. They posted it to his (laughs) house. Yeah. But I think the idea behind it was that they could... just getting, like, worse. Sorry. I know, because don't... Yeah, I'm sure they x-ray post. But um, it was so that they could travel by bus without having the weapon on them so they wouldn't get caught. I know what we're really interested in discussing in this episode is really what happened after. Mm. Um, And now that she's been released, she's essentially uh, embarked on what you could call a press tour. She's got an e-book, a Lifetime docuseries, and she's just been doing multiple interviews. And people have a lot to say about this. They range from the supportive on Instagram. Please write your own book. So many people would buy it. And then someone else said, girl, get your royalties. And then there's others who showed concern, like on YouTube. It really concerns me for her. Getting attention is one way her mother abused her. She's falling back into the same toxic dynamics. Mm. And then there's this comment on Reddit. What she needs is a shit ton of therapy and a quiet life away from the media. Well, it's not just strangers that have expressed concern. Some of her family and friends were worried that she'd pursued uh, publicity so soon. So Titania Gisclair, who was a family friend, she said, I struggle with the fact she is diving so deep into all of this publicity at the beginning of her journey. But I also sympathize as this is probably her best avenue to financially support herself. I just hope all this attention doesn't cause her to regress. But, you know, a lot of people have pointed out that given her history and her existing infamy, I mean, she doesn't really have much of a chance at a normal life. So on Reddit, someone said, Gypsy Rose has been in prison almost her entire life. She has no education, no work experience and no clear marketable skills. How do you expect her to afford therapy in a quiet life off minimum wage? Assuming she could even be hired anywhere with a murder app. And, you know, others have used this to point out the difficulties, even for unknown ex-cons. So someone said 100% this. There are so many barriers people out of prison face in finding employment and housing. Exactly. Like, you know, in this digital age, she is so recognisable. What can she really do? Mm. But I suppose people are raising different kinds of concerns in terms of the way that the media is supposedly sort of cashing in and promoting someone who's committed a serious crime. As someone said on Reddit, this woman need not be celebrated, discussed or honoured online. She needs to be thankful she's not in jail and go about living a quiet life, preferably doing good deeds. But if nothing else, just keeping her silly trap shut. And then someone else said on YouTube, I feel bad for what she went through, but I have a problem with someone getting paid and cashing in for being involved in her mother's death. Then this comment on Reddit, she's not profiting off murdering someone, she's profiting off her life story. Mm. You know, that actually brings up an interesting question of should people be able to profit off their celebrity or infamy, particularly if it's based on murder? I remember there was a huge Ferrari when O.J. Simpson, 
he actually wrote a book called If I Did It, where he hypothetically described how he would have killed his ex-wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, and her friend, Ronald Goldman, if he had done it. Although he had claimed he hadn't done it and he was actually acquitted of the murder in criminal court. So, you know, and even he described it as it's all blood money. And unfortunately, I had to join the jackals, but it helped me get out of debt and secure my homestead. But it really feels like in the 90s with the 24-7 news cycles, you know, the tabloids went into overdrive, particularly on this OJ Simpson story Mm. and just true crime in general. You know, you think about it, the media networks are making millions. So I understand why the people involved want a sort of uh, cut of the pie, so to say. And I remember, and I don't know if you do, but the story of like Amy Fisher. You know, she was called the Long Island Lolita and she shot the wife of her lover in 1992. And then she was offered, after she'd done her prison sentence, multiple lifetime movies and book deals for her life story. And when asked why she was doing this, she said, because I can make a lot of money. I figure if I'm going to go through all this pain and suffering, I'm going to get a Ferrari. I mean, that's quite a quote, but it's honest. I sort of vaguely remember that story, but not all the details. But but for me, it actually makes me think of the serial killer John Wayne Gacy. And he Mm. was selling his clown paintings while he was on death row for murdering multiple boys. And um, the state of Illinois in the end, actually sued him in 1993 because they didn't want him to profit from the sale of his artworks. Um, and, and that worked, but at the time of his death, the artwork was then sold. It was sold for between $200 to $20,000 per piece. Mm. And he's, not, he's definitely not the only one. There's Richard Ramirez, who's the Night Stalker, and Charles Manson. They've also sold artwork. And this kind of stuff is now referred to as murderabilia. And Even celebrities like Johnny Depp, Susan Sarandon and Marilyn Manson have all publicly admitted to purchasing art by convicted killers. Um, Marilyn Manson, I'm not surprised by. Susan Sarandon, I am. That's a bit random. Uh, That's really random. But now I'm like, you know, honestly, I'm reflecting on it. I mean, that's such a strange turn. Is it? How do you say it? Murderabilia. Yeah. Yeah. Now I'm reflecting on it. I'm thinking about when I went on a jack the ripper tour around london exploring like these tiny white chapel terraces where women were brutally murdered and then afterwards we headed to the 10 bells pub for a post-tour drink as that is apparently where ripper met his final victim and i'm thinking in a way i'm contributing to the same kind of macabre industry right yeah you know i really understand feeling conflicted about that because i also do I remember hearing years ago while i was still in london they were um they were going to build a ripper museum and i think it was in shoreditch But in the end, it was objected to and picketed by women who felt that it was actually just glorifying the crimes and completely overlooking the victims. And, you know, Mm. I totally agree with that perspective on the one hand, um, particularly when it is done in a a sort of distasteful way. But, you know, if I'm going to be really honest, on the other hand, there's part of me that's like, I would be really interested in going. So I, I, Mm -hmm. I do feel kind of confused about it. But I do think buying the murderabilia itself, it's, it's like a whole new level. Yeah. And people have commented about this topic online. So someone said, ever since the beginning of time, people have traded and bought and sold mementos of events. Don't know why crime should be any different. Someone else said, I can see why people are so intrigued by holding a piece of history, regardless of how macabre it is. However, there's so much suffering and sadness and grief that went into the making of that object That's just glorifying the killer, in my opinion. Mm. And finally, there was this comment that said, 
Parents of murdered children have criticised murderabilia for adding a public entertainment aspect to murder. Don't forget, murder victims were real human beings and they had family and friends who mourned their deaths. And I think that is something to remember. Why do people buy it? Like, it doesn't appeal to me. What do you think the appeal is? Well, similarly to you, I don't personally have any interest in collecting murderabilia. And as some of the comments express, it does feel a little disrespectful to me, particularly depending on the object. But I also feel like there might be quite a lot of negative energy with it. So I don't know that I'd want it in my Mm. house. On the other hand, again, (laughs) I I would actually be quite happy to view it in a in a criminology museum, but I I, I wouldn't want to personally own it. However, someone who does um, collect is Andrew Dodge. He's also the host of the Unforbidden Truth podcast, and he's actually said, I collect murderabilia to preserve dark parts of history. Although murderabilia is a taboo subject, it does provide insight into the psyche and world of the criminal. Finally, you know, Professor of Forensic Psychology, Catherine Ramsland, she's explained it as, the murderabilia market, it echoes the can't-turn-away attraction of battlefields, extreme sports, horror films, and even dangerous weather events. Psychologically, a collector can experience the killer's aura, but from a safe distance. Exactly. It feels like there's always something exciting for people about anything that is taboo. It really makes me think of Trent Reznor. He's from Nine Inch Nails and he bought the house and put in a recording studio where Sharon Tate and other people were murdered by the Charles Manson cult. And he said about it, as with much of America, I share a morbid fascination with serial killers, with all the sick folklore that surrounds them. And, you know, the property has since been torn down. He moved out and it was torn down. But for a while it was called the Mount Everest of Haunted Houses and the Disneyland for the Dead. Wow, I didn't actually know that. You know, I understand that I think essentially we're all fascinated by the things that we're afraid of and, and are actually outside the social boundaries where we normally live. You know, and serial killers are, are the perfect example of this. They're, they're a threat that we can't control because, you know, they target their victims indiscriminately. So theoretically, anyone could be a victim. You know, there's, it's just sort of a roll of the dice. Yeah. But um, criminologist Scott Bond has said, serial killers have become pop culture icons or what I call celebrity monsters since the 1970s. Serial killers have a visceral appeal for the public, similar to monster movies, because they provide a euphoric adrenaline rush. Yeah, and I think the first time I ever heard the term serial killer was when I first watched Silence of the Lambs. I think I was about 14. It was absolutely terrifying. (laughs) And the whole concept was really terrifying. But it also felt very, very American. Mm. Um, I mean, you know a lot more about serial killers than I do. I mean, what's the fascination? Well, you know, I started watching documentaries and reading books about them when I was a teenager. More the criminology aspect of it. At the time, if I'd been American, I would have said that my perfect job would have been an FBI profiler, which is the sort of job that is what the guys on Criminal Minds do now, but that that hadn't been released as a show at the time. It's surprisingly common for people to be interested in this. So Oxygen TV Network, they, they have a serial killer week. That's how popular oh. it is. And I, I just think people, we're fascinated by anything that's considered abnormal and that we can't understand. So serial killers mm. are, you know, perfect apex for this. They are. And I don't know if it's just me, but it feels like the last five or six years, I just think there's so much serial killer and murder content on Netflix. Mm. 
And actually, it turns out that according to the Washington Post, more than any other entertainment outlet, a number of Netflix's hit shows spotlight gruesome violence often committed against women. And Glenn Sparks, a professor at Purdue University who has studied the effects of media violence, has said, I'm concerned about the trajectory we're on. If I worked at Netflix, I might say, well, this is what people want. But that doesn't mean that it should be provided. Yeah, I mean, that raises an important point. And I think some of the comments I've seen on Reddit threads have also asked why there is this fascination. Some of the people, some of the reasons that people have given. Uh, One person said, the same reason people slow down for car crashes, intrinsic human curiosity. Also, we're designed for self-preservation. So reading about others in great peril sometimes makes one wonder what you do in that situation. Mm. And another comment that I found quite interesting was, most of us live rather monotonous lives within the narrow confines of social, cultural and economic structures. But at the same time, we celebrate those who strike their own paths. And this clash creates a hollow space in which many entertain fantasies to, one, break free from conformity, and two actively destroy the structures themselves. And in this way, true crime and serial killer stories provide the space to act out these fantasies in our minds from the safe comfort of the couch. Mm. You know, and I think that's an interesting perspective. But um, there was also this comment um, (laughs) that was quite funny. And he said, well, wait until you find out about the women that send fan mail and offers of marriage to serial killers. It's actually called hybristophilia. Look it up. Long history. Very odd. And this actually brings us full circle back to Gypsy Rose because she got proposed to and even married while she was in jail. Actually, that's something I want to talk about is strangers wanting to marry these killers in prison. You know, when I think of Richard Ramirez, Charles Manson, both of the Hillside Stranglers and both the Menendez brothers, you know, they all married pen pals while in prison. And you know what? I'm so, I, sorry, I have to say it. They're having more luck than I did in my early days of Tinder. Oh, my God. I mean, I mean me too. <laughs> and perhaps my new dating strategy is to become a notorious criminal. But, you know, there are some downsides <laughs> to that. Yeah, just don't leave the podcast, OK? Whatever it takes, Sarah. In prison. <laughs> <laughs> but women regularly send pornographic pictures of themselves to self-styled most violent prisoner in Britain, wow. Charles Bronson which he then publishes on his website. I mean, like, surely they know this. Why do they? Okay, I don't know. I know. (laughs) Let's not go there. (laughs) Um, But I've never understood that. You know, what motivates, mostly they're saying it's women, to write to convicted serial killers? Do you think that they think they're innocent? Do you think that they can reform them? Or are they attracted to them being sort of like the ultimate bad boys? You know, it is fascinating. And, you know, as you've asked there, there isn't necessarily a single motive for everyone who does it. So um, some of the potential motives can include a desire for vicarious celebrity, particularly if they're a big, you know, famous Mm -hmm. serial killer. Maybe they've got a saviour complex. For some, they're subconsciously repeating abusive relationships, um, unfortunately, as a result of childhood trauma and low self-esteem. But, you know, a really interesting one um, is about fantasy projection. And forensic psychologist Catherine Ramsden, she actually said, by marrying a criminal who has been sentenced to life in prison, a woman can enjoy the perfect boyfriend, one who thinks about her often and never strays. And what that essentially means is they don't have to endure the day-to-day issues like leaving the toilet seat up. Yeah. It's the fantasy is so much better than the reality. That's a really fascinating insight. Wow. Mm. I never really thought about it like that. I thought it was something to do with them wanting to like reform them you know that's definitely what some people do do that there is Mm. that element but you know uh, 
yeah. <laughs> but we've said it's it's mainly women that have been writing and marrying prisoners. But this is actually relevant to the Gypsy Rose story, isn't it? Because now she's married to a man who wrote to her while she was in prison. Yeah, she's actually married to this guy called Ryan Scott Anderson and he's a special needs teacher from Louisiana. And he actually first wrote to her in 2020 during the pandemic, but they married two years later in July 2022 while she was still in prison. I'll tell you what I find really interesting about this part is that he mm. stated that he's actually nervous of the media attention. So he, he said, oh, I'm a very private person. At the same time, he's been a big part of a press tour. He's been filmed for her docuseries. He's joined her in interviews with Access Hollywood mm. and the Vile Files podcast and many others. And they've been very open in what they've discussed about their relationship. And also most of his Instagram posts are about her. So as someone in the comments pointed out, Notice that he didn't have an Insta until they were together and he could post and gain attention. Mm. Okay, I mean, something's really not adding up about him saying that he wants to be private and everything. Yeah, 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 I mean, you know, there's certainly a lot of oversharing, let's just put it that way, for someone who's um, a private person. And in response to all these sort of like negative uh, comments, Gypsy Rose defended her husband on um, Instagram and she put this post, Ryan, don't listen to the haters. I love you and you love me. We do not owe anyone anything. Our family is who matters. And then she went on to say, besides they jealous because you are rocking my world every night. Yeah, I said it. The D is fire. Happy wife, happy life. And um, for a private person, he wasn't that embarrassed by that. He responded with... Who said I give a damn about what these jealous people say anyway? Ha ha, now come get it, baby. <laughs> so I feel like, Sarah, I shouldn't be hearing this. I mean, oh. yeah, I think everyone saw it and none of us should have seen it. Yeah. yeah. Why is she doing this? Well, well, I know she's a bit, I don't know. I shouldn't try and judge her. She's been through a lot of shit, right? Yeah. I mean, she's bound to be a little bit emotionally affected by this experience and maybe maturity is an issue. But um You could also say a big part of becoming an influencer and selling her story and then earning enough money is actually dependent on people being interested. And um, shocking things interest people. Yeah. And a lot of people who go this route, they play this up. In her new Lifetime docuseries, she regularly prefaces um, a lot of her revelations with the statement, this is something I never told anyone before, you know? Mm. Well, it definitely seems like someone's behind her or she's doing it. She really knows the game of grabbing the headlines and getting that attention. But like I've said before, today we're kind of like much more media savvy. We kind of see through this PR trashy and the spin Mm. and more aware generally of the manipulation going on. For example, someone said on Reddit, she certainly appears desperate for attention. Not a good look. There also seems a lot of people that are sort of uh, fawning almost fangirling over her on social media and lots of posts saying um slay my queen you know i have to just say there's bad taste (laughs) sorry that's an unfortunate choice of words (laughs) but sarah but what point do we ask how much can we really believe everything she said especially when it almost feels like it's deliberately one shocking thing after another and you've been raised to play along with your mother's lies you know and someone said on youtube i take what gypsy says with a grain of salt Someone else said, she's telling her truth. I hate those two words. Try telling the truth. Mm. And then someone else said, her mother exploited her and now she's exploiting the entire situation. The cycle continues. 
Well, I think that actually brings us to what Michelle Dean, who was one of the co-creators of the Hulu series, has said. And she's, uh, you know, she said, there's no way someone could be as connected to a manipulator on Dee Dee's level and not either actively or passively pick up a few of her behaviours. And Melanie McFarland in Salon writes, this woman is an extremely unreliable narrator. And she goes on to reference old clips of Gypsy Rose with her mother, where she's actually pretending to be younger than she really is. She's playing up her innocence. And it's for a local news station's camera. And actually, she's basically playing her part to help Dee Dee scam a home out of Habitat for Humanity. And she does it really well. But as you said, at that time, she was under her mother's control, right? Yeah. And threatened with violence if she didn't comply. Oh, absolutely. And and that's something I do want to say is, is it is a complex situation because, you know, on the one hand, she is a victim. That's been established. She was horrendously abused. And people often who haven't been in that situation, they don't realise how psychologically trapped people become when they're in these kinds of relationships. It's not as easy as some people want to say, which is, why didn't she say something? Why didn't she do something earlier? And at the same time, she was also complicit in a murder. And, and there is a bit of a debate that's been, that, you know, that's been going on for a while mm. about, was she actually the instigator and did she actually manipulate her ex-boyfriend? He did actually have multiple mental health issues. So was she really the, the mastermind? But... Um, mm. You know, ultimately, with her celebrity status and the way that the media have fueled this fascination, I think it. Ra- the more important question is, what does this actually say about our society that we're feeding into this? So, you know, there was this YouTube comment that was brilliant. It said, society is so fucked when murderers get a press tour. Okay, so we've been talking about the more extreme end of criminals as celebrities, where murder and violence are involved. But the story that really has fascinated me, as you well know, is the story of Anna Delvey. Yeah, I mean, you were totally fascinated by that Netflix series, Inventing Anna. Yeah, I really was. And I think what I found so interesting with Anna Delvey, she's part of what I call this era of hustle criminals. I've actually never heard of hustle criminals. Well, let me tell you. So I feel like they're the celebrity criminals of this generation, people who start off in hustle sort of entrepreneurship, you know, tech bros, girl boss aspirations, and then cross over into fraud and then breaking the Mm. law. People that you might have held up as achieving the American dream before, it all comes crashing down. And as someone really describes when on Reddit, the bigger problem is scammer grifter culture America seems to have found itself in. Fire Festival, Elizabeth Holmes, Anna Delvey, that we work douche, <laughs> even Tyler Kalanick from Uber, basically think all the biopic TV series coming out now in America about millennial fake it till I make it, grifters and scammers. I've definitely heard that phrase, fake it till you make it a lot, like it's it's the way we should all be now. Mm. But I mean, what you're essentially describing is what I would have called white collar crime. And, you know, when we talk about that, it's like, What differentiates some of those people who just use loopholes to their advantage, which I would say is basically most of Wall Street, and what makes them full-blown criminals? Because it's a very fine line. And I came across this Reddit comment that sort of summed that up and they said, how many self-made billionaires that the media glamorized commit tax fraud and employ people in overseas sweatshops? The rich as a whole are shady. (laughs) That's a great comment. (laughs) Uh, Well, let's just start with the backstory of Anna Delvey. Um, Did you actually listen to me and watch (laughs) Inventing Anna? (laughs) You know what? I've obviously heard about it. I've I've just started watching it. I I really want to watch more, but I don't know the full story. 
Okay, well, look, she's quite a character and her name, Anna Delvey, is actually a pseudonym. Her real name is Anna Sorokin, who was born in Russia but posed as a wealthy German heiress to access the upper-class New York social and art scenes from 2013 to 2017. And during that time, she was able to con this New York elite, you know, we're talking businesses, banks and her friends out of thousands of dollars to help fund her lavish lifestyle and her art foundation, which was imaginatively called the Anna Delvey Foundation, <laughs> which was sold to potential investors as a social club for artists and patrons in New York City. I mean, that has to be the most extreme example of social climbing that I can think of. And how did she manage to convince so many people that she was who she claimed to be? Well, she cultivated this aura of this like really mysterious Euro aristocrat. Mm. You know, she claimed that she had a family trust fund of 60 million euros. She created fake financial documents to substantiate her claims. And she forged multiple wire transfer confirmations. She then used these documents as well as fraudulent checks to trick banks, acquaintances and realtors into paying out cash and granting large loans without collateral. And she was trying to get a $22 million loan, but ended up with just $275,000. So, you know, I imagine she then just lived it up, right? Yeah, she really did. She was um, staying in these fancy hotels in New York, which she never paid the bills for. She made lots of high-end fashion purchases. She had celebrity trainer sessions. I mean, she really was like this, quote, you know, it girl with a perfect Instagram, you know? You know what I don't understand is how did she get away with it for so long and no one really questioned her? I mean, this is what comes up a lot in the comments. You know, someone said, why did no one do a Google search about her rich daddy and her trust fund before taking <laughs> yeah. the first meeting? Yeah. yeah. Does she have a LinkedIn profile even? <laughs> I don't know. And then another comment, you can spend $500 in a night and convince people you're a billionaire. As long as you act the part for a short while and nobody has seen you do anything else, why would anyone question you? Yeah. Well, fake it till you make it. But she was also really known, and you see this in the show, for being very rude and demanding to service workers, which somehow sort of reinforced this perception that maybe she was rich and she's one of these trust fund babies. Um, and someone said in a comment, she treated people like crap and had no excuse, except she was pretending to be a rich heiress. Mm. And this was interesting. Another comment, US society often equates rude and bitchy with smart. Studies show that surgeons who are kind and friendly are viewed as less skilled than surgeons who are rude and arrogant when no other data actually related to skill is given to the assessor. Isn't that fascinating? It is really fascinating and a bit worrying. You know, it's a bit sad, really. Uh, you know what? I also know that people have discussed the fact that she was female, she was white, European, and she was really into fashion. And uh, I saw a comment that said, stop whitewashing it. She's a young woman who dresses nicely and uses her money on what any normal woman would want, which apparently is fashion, exercise and selfies. So I'm not sure that I'm a normal woman. Um <laughs> But therefore, she's seen as innocent. So where is the soft and gentle portrayal of Bernie Madoff? Did he have any red carpet looks by any chance? The thing I notice is she, she's quite petite, isn't she? Mm. And I sort of think that psychologically, people struggle to see small people, particularly women, as a threat. And especially as she presented herself as a fashionista, um, people just sort of bought into that. They really did. I mean, there was a whole Instagram account dedicated to Anna Delvey court looks. Oh, she wore a lot of baby doll style dresses. And the Edge of the Crowd website wrote, in the face of justice, Anna almost appears girlish. 
and that her commitment to fashion throughout her court trial has well and truly elevated Anna Delvey into a pop culture icon. You know what? It makes me think of how people were obsessed with those, uh, you know, vintage Dharma style glasses that Gwyneth Paltrow was wearing during her ski trial. Yes. But mostly it makes me think of Ted Bundy, the serial killer, because he was an attractive, young, white, well-spoken law student. And because of how he presented, there were so many women who thought, oh, well, he has to be innocent. He couldn't have done these horrendous crimes. Mm. And he had all these groupies and, and his crimes were really severe. But I would say with Anna, this kind of feels deliberate. I mean, if you're using your criminal trial as a fashion show, how remorseful can you really be? Well, actually, Anna made this post on her own Instagram that she said, going to trial is the new sex tape. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And even during the trial, she never really expressed any remorse. The judge even said, I see no remorse. She seems more concerned about who's going to play her in the movie than what she's done to the people she allegedly took advantage of. Sounds accurate. (laughs) Yeah, and a day after she was sentenced to four to 12 years in prison, she said, the thing is, I'm not sorry. I'd be lying to you and to everyone else and to myself if I said I was sorry for anything. I regret the way I went about certain things. Yeah, I mean, that's quite brazen. Has it changed since she was released from prison? Uh, No, not really. Basically, she got into a lot of trouble for things like in jail for fighting and disobeying orders. Um, Despite that, she only ended up serving two years of her sentence and was then transferred from prison into the custody of US immigration for deportation to Germany, which she has been fighting for quite a few years. So she's currently under house arrest. Then in October 2022, she was granted a 10,000 bail bond and released from prison. She's currently on home arrest in a $4,250 a month one-bedroom apartment in the East Village in New York. Jesus, I wish I could afford an apartment like that. Who says crime doesn't pay? (laughs) I know. And if anything, prison and house arrest hasn't really held her back. She held a clubhouse arrest party in January 2023, oh. where according to page six, she uh, she asked attendees to sign an NDA and provide their social security numbers what? and hosted a New York fashion event on the roof of her apartment in September. And people commented, lots of shallow people attended a fancy party for a criminal who said crime doesn't pay, mm. like you said. And then another comment, anyone giving her their money and social security number deserves to be fleeced. (laughs) And then finally, celebrity knows no bounds. She has a reality show in the works and she's famous for being infamous. You know, it it really seems like uh, being arrested and becoming notorious has only really helped her and it hasn't been a punishment much at all. I think so. I think so. I'm with you on that. I mean, she has, let's look at the stats. She has one million followers on Instagram. She sells her own artwork with price tags of up to $18,000 per item. She received $320,000 for the rights to her story from Netflix, although this was confiscated under the Son of Sam laws, which prohibits those convicted of a crime from profiting from its publicity and forced the majority of these funds to be used to pay restitution and the fines per the judgment to her victims and people Mm. she owed money to. She's since signed a deal for a reality show and has teased a book, podcast and a creative project with Julia Fox. Wow. She's also formed a fashion PR company with a former judge on America's Next Top Model and has launched a collection of NFTs, which are, in human language, non-fungible tokens. So she has been busy. I mean, (laughs) you know, I'm sure there's some people who might say just, you know, she's incredibly entrepreneurial. 
but I know she's a divisive character and it definitely feels like there are people who really admire her because she scammed rich people. So there have been quite a few comments where they're they're basically saying eat the rich and they deserved it. And and you know that reminds us uh, and that reminds me of the sort of sentiment that came up in our Titanic sub disaster episode. Mm. But for example, some of the comments I'll admit I did feel a decent amount of schadenfreude for the rich people that got scammed. It's just nice to be reminded that money doesn't make you any smarter than the rest of us. And to be honest, she has some brass balls. Another comment, I feel a lot of sympathy for Anna. She came from a shitty rural background, had a dream and managed to scam the richest dumbasses of New York City who had it coming. And, you know, finally, someone said, unpopular opinion, I love her. Not her as a person, but what she was capable of. It's literally the American dream, pre-prison, of course. Come from nothing, make your way to the top. I admire her moxie. And, you know, it, it is like you said, she's the epitome of the American dream to some people. That's so true. And it really made me think of um, the Thomas Crown affair. I'm thinking of the one with Rene Russo and uh, Pierce, Pierce Brosnan. Brosnan. Yeah. Yeah. Which I know is a film both of us love. And, and the idea is like if you do it stylishly, and particularly if it's not a violent crime, then it's actually okay. You can even be sort of admired for being bold and taking a risk. And as someone said on the Mail Online, she'll write a book about her criminal behaviour and become a celebrity like the Wolf of Wall Street's Jordan Maxwell. The Yanks love being taken for mugs and handing money over to grifters. <laughs> okay, <laughs> say what you mean. Um, but there's a lot of people who feel that she's actually a sociopath who shouldn't be celebrated. And someone said, I remember reading the original story about this pathological, grifting liar and being shocked anyone had any feelings about her aside from absolute contempt. Yeah. And then this comment, she screwed business owners and friends out of millions of dollars. If a man did that, people would be disgusted. But people are acting like this woman is some sort of amazing girl boss. Netflix, HBO, Hulu and all those other streaming services should stop sensationalising bad behaviour. You know what I think blurs the line a little bit is we live in a society now that revolves around media and PR and spin that, that you know, they use that term. And it, it's, it's always being used to sell us something. So, I mean, when we look at real estate, they use the word cozy instead of tiny and cramped. Or they use the mm. phrase, oh, it's got lots of potential. And what that essentially means is it, it needs a shitload of work. <laughs> yeah, so true. Yeah. <laughs> but a lot of us have grown up you know, completely saturated in this jargon and and, and, and it's used to conceal, but um, we often regard it as just, oh, that's good business skills, that's marketing. So people look at this hustle culture as, as a sort of extension of that. And there must be a lot of people out there who are working really hard for long hours, for little pay, and they're thinking, why can't I play that game too? Exactly. And I think this was at the heart of the fascination around the Elizabeth Holmes Um, trial you know did she know she was doing criminal things Mm. and you know when does puffery of your startup and credentials to get buy-in actually go into lying and being dangerously misleading Mm. i noticed one thing they did to anna delvey was um they tried to take away her instagram as punishment and you know maybe they were thinking that would cut off her way of making money but it it absolutely hasn't stopped her at all it really hasn't and and it's actually a bit weird because hollywood magazine uh, trade magazine variety they did a youtube interview with her quite recently picking her house arrest favorites and someone commented 
what a sad world we live in when we validate this kind of character. And then someone else said, she served her time. You haters can go on now. If people serve their time and aren't sentenced to life or committed a violent crime, they're entitled to be allowed to rejoin society and have a new start. And this brings me to everyone does deserve a second chance, in my view, of redemption Mm. to a certain degree. Okay, you know, Anna Delvey, she's not showing remorse, but she has done the time and she's but she's now sort of locked in this strange notoriety. And my view is once you've sort of paid for your crime, shouldn't you be allowed to move on and support yourself? Mm. Sarah, what are your final thoughts on this topic? For me, what's interesting about both of these women is that some people have actually judged their victims to have deserved it. So there's a blurring of lines between um, victim and murderer in Gypsy Rose's case and between entrepreneur and fraudster in Anna Delvey's case. And I think any time that there's a gray area and it's an example we don't know how to categorize, people are intrinsically fascinated by it because they're just trying to work it out. They're trying to, they're trying to place it. Mm. This idea of criminals being celebrity, it's not a new thing. You, you did have the notorious pirates back in the day. But now we've actually moved into the criminal influencer age and it's easier than ever for people to actually monetize on their own notoriety. You know, we're in a tabloid society where any attention is good attention and it can then be parlayed into a lucrative career. And it's worrying that people can in effect be rewarded for hurting others. But it's also true to say that we're all fascinated by shocking stories and we feed into this cycle because we choose to consume it. Uh, You know, even I'm guilty of this. Mm. Where I try to draw the line is directly buying from the individual or actively fueling their um, attention, like following them on Instagram. Mm. I personally, I like true crime, but particularly ones that treat the victims respectfully. And I'm definitely not going to be buying any products Anna Delvey is hawking or try and build a parasocial relationship with Gypsy Rose. And I'm definitely not, and you can, you can quote me on this, I'm definitely not going to be sending Charles Bronson nudes. Um, <laughs> so, you know, that's, that's my line in the sand, guys. Okay, good to know, Sarah. You know, Robert Kennedy, he said, every society gets the kind of criminal it deserves. And we're in a society that's obsessed with celebrities. So it's not surprising that it extends fame to criminals as well. Mm. And I love this quote from Canadian writer Lawrence J. Peter, who said, the reason crime doesn't pay is that when it does, it's called a more respectable name. <laughs> Goop. That's no. a good point. <laughs> Leave it out. It's 2024. Leave Gwyneth alone. <laughs> All right. So thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us today. You don't want to miss our mini next week. It's a really good one. I think you're going to really enjoy it. And we're answering your questions that you put to us on Instagram. And then the following week, we come back with a full episode, which is... Uh, medical speculation about people in the public eye. And uh, do people deserve privacy if they're a public person? Yeah, so lots to dive into. So thanks for listening and for joining us. And we'll see you next time. Thank you to our lovely producer, Emily. If you enjoyed today's episode, please don't forget to leave a review and subscribe. It really does help us in reaching more people. You can also follow us on Instagram. Our handle is at S2TC Podcast. You can find out more about the show, get behind the scenes, come and say hello. Until then, see you next time. This podcast has been produced by Emily Crosby Media. 